Welcome to Climate Now. I'm Katherine Gorman. And I'm James Lawler. Today, we're going to get into green banks, what they are, how they can help leverage private capital to support climate mitigation and adaptation. To better understand the green bank model, we're speaking with Brian Garcia, the president and CEO of the Connecticut Green Bank, the first green bank in the United States. The Connecticut Green Bank has deployed over $2 billion in capital towards clean energy in 2011. And that is great because according to the International Renewable Energy Agency, we need to increase planned clean energy investment by 30% to $131 trillion by 2050. Big numbers. So, Brian, that's an important endeavor. How did you get into this work? In general, you know, public service for me is really a privilege. As a teenager, I grew up in the LA County uh, Department of Parks and Recreation as a recreation leader. So I'm very familiar with uh, local community economic development. When I graduated from college, uh, I went into international development. I was a Peace Corps volunteer in the former Soviet Republic of Kazakhstan. Uh, helping with environmental education and non-governmental organization capacity building. Uh, And then when I finished grad school, um, I really discovered economic development, clean energy and climate at the state level. So I I was thinking about what was the moment that inspired me to get involved in climate change? And literally, I remember the moment. It was in October of 2001. You know, there's this regional economic development effort in New England states and Eastern Canadian provinces. And they issued this resolution. It was resolution 26-4. Uh, a resolution concerning energy and the environment. And this agreement essentially established the first subnational climate change greenhouse gas emission reduction targets. I remember I was at Connecticut Innovations at the time and you know, I was a, an investment associate, you know, on the uh, helping do a lot of the due diligence on what was now green tech, clean tech. Back then that term didn't even exist. But I remember waving this document around the office saying, this is what we're doing. This is what we're doing. Like this is the policy that we're here to support. So I was really inspired by this moment. And I'd love to focus in on green banks and the the foundational idea. Where did that get started? Where are green banks from? What what is it? So so a green bank, you could think of as um, a a quasi-public. That's that's what we are. I'll talk about that in a second. Uh, A public entity, a a regular traditional government agency, uh, a nonprofit organization, uh, community development financial institutions, credit unions, Um, We're really organizations that are designed to focus on mobilizing private investment in uh, clean energy uh, and climate finance. Um, We're a quasi-public here in Connecticut, which essentially means two things. Um, We use private sector disciplines to achieve public sector goals. So rather than having to go through an annual budgetary process through a legislature, we have a board of directors that are appointed by legislative leaders and the governor. Uh, And on an annual basis, just like a business would, and we report out and and change quarterly, uh, we uh, propose a budget and targets and we work to, you know, hit those targets. We have to operate at the speed of business because secondly, in our case, as a quasi-public, we're kind of an intermediary between the ambitious public policy objectives of our legislature and executive branch. Connecticut is very committed on a bipartisan basis to having greenhouse gas emission reduction targets, renewable portfolio standards, um, a regional greenhouse gas initiative, a cap and trade program. So our role is to translate those public policies to the private markets because we want all that private money that's out there to get off the bench and to put that money to help Connecticut uh, meet meet and achieve those policy objectives uh, by using their capital. So green banks 
really focus on using a limited amount of public resources to attract and uh, mobilize multiples of private investment. That's in essence a green bank um, and a little bit about the Connecticut Green Bank. Where the idea originated is really, I think, interesting. Back in 2009, for all of you like policy hawks out there who were following the American Clean Energy and Securities Act, you know, some know it, know it as ACES, some know it as the cap and trade bill, some know it as the Waxman-Markey bill. It was then Congressman Van Hollen who introduced into that bill something called the Clean Energy Development Authority, CETA. And it was an introduction on the floor and that introduction of that part of the bill received bipartisan support, and it was effectively a national climate bank. Well, we all know what happened. Um, ACES passed the House, but it didn't pass the Senate. But when the idea failed back in 2009, the proponent of the bill, uh, Reed Hunt, uh, the executive director of the Coalition for Green Capital, said, well, if it didn't move at the national level, let's find a state. That was effectively the bipartisan creation of the nation's first state-level green bank. So, Brian, I'd love to just get a little more specific about how exactly it works, the green bank model. So let's say I have a project and I'm looking for financing. You know, what is the concept and, and why would I choose to go to a green bank versus just going to, you know, a normal commercial bank? Like, what are the what is the term structure that you offer and who should apply? Like if you could just, you know, walk us through the mechanics of how this works. Well, I would say that green banks, we finance commercially available technology. So we're not going to go out and finance or provide capital to technologies that are still in their experimental stage. So you come to us with a project and we say, huh, James, that's interesting. You've got an anaerobic digester project. Well, in Connecticut, we've got an anaerobic digester policy that uh, collects food waste from large producers from our grocery stores and aggregates that food waste. Why don't we work with you, James, to make sure that that project is supporting that food waste uh, anaerobic digester collection policy? And you know what, James, who are, who are your, who's, who's helping you finance those projects? Oh, you, you may not have any investors yet. Okay, well, we like your project. It fits within our policy context. Why don't we go and meet with local financial institutions? Let's go and meet with People's Bank right here in Connecticut. Um, you know, you have a business relationship with them. And you know what? We'll tell People's Bank, the Connecticut Green Bank likes this project. We will put up capital for 20% of the capital stack and our capital will be at risk. So you, People's Bank, if you provide senior debt, we'll provide subordinated debt. So if James' project loses, we will take the first loss. We will take the risk of that. And as a result, People's Bank comes into the deal. We use 20% of our capital. They provide 60% of capital. You come in with 20% of your equity. The project gets up and financed and running and delivering on the policy objectives that we are after uh, here in Connecticut. You know, I, I can tell you a story of when we first got created, one of the, the first meeting we had, we were really excited uh, because you know the idea of advancing the clean energy economy, we're, we're all really excited about. But one of our first meetings was with the Connecticut Bankers Association. And uh, we had a meeting with them and we were like, the state of Connecticut has really ambitious policies and they just created us. And we we're all excited to figure out a way of partnering. And the chair of this association said, well, you know, the last thing we want is another public backed entity standing in front of our business. And, and that was the welcome we got from the banking industry. And our response, my response back was, well, Actually, we want to do what we can to draw your capital to support the public policies that we're trying to address. So whatever we can do to help your banks, 
put their capital to work in this market to help us achieve these policies, uh, we're going to do it. So, so your project is one example of a direct. Sorry to interrupt. Did that did that banker who who said that initially did, did that person come to understand the value of the green bank or definitely over time? I mean, initially, right? You could imagine, um, okay, government's coming in doing this. You know, people just—it's change, right? People are usually used to government just giving money out instead of loaning it out and getting it back. So today, the members of the association benefit completely from all the programs and all the investments that we have with them. For example, we have a program called the Smarty Loan. It's a, a residential program. Uh, Connecticut has a comprehensive energy strategy where we're trying to see the deployment of kind of any clean energy, energy efficiency measure you could think about that uh, will not only help homeowners reduce energy costs, but also um, uh, to help the state reduce its greenhouse gas emissions. So uh, what we ended up doing is providing a credit enhancement. This is one tool in the green bank toolbox. So we went to our local community banks and credit unions and said, you know what, um, Connecticut has these policies and we know you have uh, capital on the books and you provide loans to families. You know, you, you provide mortgages, um, you provide auto loans. Have you ever thought of an energy loan um, and an unsecured energy loan? Um, and, you know, we see that you tend to shy away from a loan that's longer than 10 years. Well, could we do something to get you to do a 10-year loan, a 15-year loan, or a 20-year loan? Because that's the useful life of these measures, right? These, these energy measures. So what we did is we went to them and had this conversation and said, we will take a loss for you to provide unsecured loans to families and businesses in Connecticut to help us achieve our policy objectives. But what you have to do is you have to operate within this framework. You have to have not to exceed interest rates. You have to be willing to go out in terms. This is an unsecured loan. Um, and for that, you take the first one and a half percent of losses, which is pretty typical of the banking industry. Like they underwrite, they have their own thresholds. So we don't want to disrupt the, their normal course of business. And then what we say is, uh, we'll take the next seven and a half percent of losses on top of that one and a half percent. So what that's done is that's got them into the program. Um, they have to date provided over a hundred million dollars of loans to 5,500 families, and the Connecticut Green Bank has only had to pay seventy-five thousand dollars of losses. So in this context, what we've done is used a limited amount of public resources to help the local finance industry credit unions, community development financial institutions, put their money to work to help us achieve our public policies, while at the same time, they're making the risk-return expectations that they're after, and we're delivering on our public policy objectives that, that we're focused on. And in terms of the financial sort of metrics to which the Green Bank is held by your charter, or by sort of, and maybe you could speak more generally, you know, the uh, Green Bank charters typically, you know, what, what do those look like? Is there a profit mandate for the green bank is, you know, can you operate? Are you expected to operate at a loss? Do you operate at a loss? Um, how does that, how does that actually work? It's a great, great question. I think a lot of green banks have uh, a couple of principles in mind when they operate. The first is fundamental to green banks, which is using limited public to mobilize multiples of private, you know, so, so in that context, the willingness to lose 
or to have low interest rates is very much front and center. But a second part is that green banks tend to also want to pursue their own sustainability objective, which is to say that as they loan their capital out over time, the interest income that comes from loaning your capital out will cover the operating expenses to run the organization so that you're, you're becoming a smarter, more self-reliant organization. So interest matters in terms of that context. Um, in terms of the segment of the market and how we price capital, I think that really varies. So for example, uh, we have a target as a Connecticut Green Bank of uh, trying to achieve an interest rate of 4% uh, of our capital uh, with uh, an average uh, maturity term of 10 years. So we put out $30 million a year um, and we expect that on average, there'll be a 4% return over a 10 year maturity that cash flow that comes from interest income is covering our operating expenses. So it's helping us become more sustainable. But on a portfolio basis, it may be that for that affordable housing project, we're lending at 1% versus that more risky fuel cell project, we're lending at 8%. But on an overall blended basis, we're trying to achieve uh, you know, a 4% sustainability target over a 10-year period. So I'd love to ask, could you talk about sort of energy transition projects specifically where the Connecticut Green Bank for you know has has come in and has has been able to jumpstart particular projects yeah so so we do have a great example in Connecticut we also administer administered it's come to a conclusion but uh, essentially the policy was to ensure 350 megawatts of residential solar by the end of 2022 um, it, it ended up that we achieved that target ahead of schedule using less public subsidies than needed because we followed a green bank model, which is to, to decrease the market's reliance on public subsidies and replace it or bring in private investment on top of it. Well, we realized in 2014, when we took a look at the data, we asked ourselves the question because we were seeing investment and deployment of residential solar in Connecticut. But when we stepped back and asked ourselves the question of, who was that benefiting? And you know, you could think of who from a variety of different perspectives: communities of color, uh, income, medical hardship. You know, so we asked ourselves the question at the time based on income, and it was clear that we were completely failing to ensure that the green economy we were creating from solar was being made possible to those with who had need, low to moderate income families. It was like abysmal. We were completely failing. And the board, we had a conversation, we shared the data, and the board said, it's all well and good that we're mobilizing the capital that we need to achieve targets. But let's look at another policy. We need to ensure that vulnerable communities have as much, if not more, access to those technologies. So the board ended up deciding, you know what, we need to uh, provide a little bit more incentive for low to moderate income families. Uh, we also did some research that um, took a look at income in comparison to credit scores. Um, and in Connecticut, those two things aren't correlated, which essentially means that if you're low income doesn't mean that you have poor quality. So if you do that kind of research and you share it with the industry, your, your local contractors, your financiers, you're letting them know that it's a good bet for them to lend to uh, projects in low-income communities. So sharing data matters. 
And then thirdly, and this was really the trick that we deployed to turn the tide and to, to fill the gap, was we issued a, a request for proposals um, and essentially said, this is the market gap we're trying to fill. We want the solar industry to be deploying solar in low to moderate income communities because right now it wasn't happening. And, you know, the industry, you know, is profit seeking, right? It's just going to go to where it can make, make its profit. So what we were saying was we want to provide incentives and resources to enable companies to serve a market that was completely being underserved. Uh, we ended up uh, finding a company out of New Orleans, Louisiana, uh, called Posigen. Uh, we brought Posigen up to Connecticut. Uh, they established a, a headquarters, their Northeast headquarters in Bridgeport, Connecticut, um, a, a vulnerable community, a distressed community. Um, we surrounded Posigen with investment from all our private partners locally, those who are interested in tax equity, mezzanine debt. And again, the Green Bank played a role in terms of bringing them in by subordinating ourselves uh, in that structure. Like a 20%, 20% of the capital structure in the subordinated position. Exactly. A little bit different, you know, priced, but similar. Right. Yes. And, right. and then we had the incentive. And as a result today, um, Posigen is among the top five installers in the state, which is great. Uh, they're employing nearly a hundred people in the state and their product uh, which is targeted at low-income communities, is a solar lease product combined with energy efficiency. So literally, we, we very rarely see solar companies doing efficiency. So this is a company who comes in, takes a look at the home, does an audit, does some weatherization, you know, $2,500 worth of weatherization, sealing up those holes, um, and then provides on top of that a solar lease. So we know how much these families are saving um, and they're saving anywhere between 600 to $750 a year from the solar lease. Um, and then on efficiency, they're saving about another $600 from the weatherization and uh, the home energy audit that was done. So, so we, we literally have like an arrow in our quiver and like, you know, for, forgive me, for those of you who are like Dungeons and Dragons geeks like out there, I used to play Dungeons and Dragons as a kid. It's like a plus three arrow in your quiver. Like, like it's, it's a good arrow. Um, it's not a silver bullet. So, so with that example, Brian, are you, how is the Connecticut Green Bank made out financially? Because I think some people maybe might think, oh, well, sure, but this is effectively just a government subsidy to low-income households to allow them to install solar. But would that be inaccurate for them to think that? You know, there's been work done by Lawrence Berkeley National Labs, which went into looking at the data. And I think their takeaway was, wow, like this uh, financing product for low-income families actually is a good bet. Like, like financial institutions should look at the data because it's, yes, it's a little risky, but it's paying off. Um, so, you know, that's, that's a, another big part of what green banks do is, you know, we share data. Our goal is to not find the secret sauce and sit on the secret sauce. Our goal is to find the secret sauce and share it so that there can be competition in the market that lowers the cost of capital, brings cheaper capital in so that we can get more clean energy deployed uh, at a rapid scale. So Brian, you've been talking about um, meaningful savings for the families that are engaged in these programs and so on and so forth, but how can we measure the impact of green banks nationally in the U.S. in terms of 
quantitative measures? What's the, can we even put a dollar amount on this or do we have to think about it in different terms? I, I love it. Like, like I think one of the areas for government, more government innovation is around measuring impact. So we just crossed our 10 year anniversary. Over the years, we've put a lot of time and effort in estimating the uh, benefit of what happens with clean energy deployment. So we've taken uh, $300 million roughly of public revenues. We receive $30 million a year. And our goal is to turn that 30 million into 200 to $300 million of private investment on top of it. So, so that 30 million comes from a system benefit fund called the Clean Energy Fund. I was talking about that a little before. It's about seven to $10 per family per year that aggregates the 25 million. Uh, and then the second is $5 million from the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. So our goal is to turn that 30 million into multiples more of private investment. So over our, our first decade, we've taken $290 million of those public revenues, and we've attracted 1.8 to 1.9 billion of private investment on top of that for 2.1, 2.2 billion dollars of investment into our green economy. So, so that, that's an easy measure, but it's probably the most important measure, investment in an economy. So, so then where do you go from there? Okay, so you invest in what? You invest in projects, right? So all the projects that happen, whether they're grid tied, we tend to focus more on the customer side of the meter. So residential and non-residential installations of renewable energy um, and energy efficiency. So we've helped deploy uh, about 500 megawatts of renewable energy. Now that renewable energy uh, helps the you know, 60,000 families and businesses reduce the burden of energy costs. So we were talking about that energy burden before we know how much um, energy they're avoiding because we meter everything. We know what the electric rates are. We know what their contracts say in terms of how much they're paying. So we can literally measure their energy savings. Okay, great. If you could measure it based on kilowatt hours or MMBTU saved, then you could also measure the associated greenhouse gas emission reductions and particulate matter, local air pollution that results from displacing local power plants. Um, so uh, we've helped to avoid uh, 10 million metric tons of CO2 emissions as a result of 500 megawatts of renewable energy. Um, that renewable energy deployment also reduces local air pollution. We can compute that reduction in air pollution using EPA tools to compute the associated public health savings, reduce sick days, hospitalization days, death as a result of you know air respiratory issues. So that's $300 million there in public health benefits. Uh, and then of course, you know, what we're all after um, uh, is jobs, right? You know, you could measure, we've got metrics that look at for every million dollars of investment in certain segments of the market, residential, commercial, industrial, for various technologies, what's the direct, indirect, and induced job years created as a result? So we measure that and we've helped create over 26,000 jobs in uh, our first 10 years. From there, wow. you can look at tax revenues. Okay, more money coming into the economy. What tax revenues are going back to the state from uh, sales tax revenues, from corporate tax revenues, the profits from the companies, the uh, individual salaries of the employees. Uh, and that's over a hundred million. I was recently in a conversation with an investor uh, and they talked about outcome-based investment. And I was like, that absolutely is what green banks are doing. Well, like, we're not interested in the bottom line financial, we're interested in the social and environmental because we are driven by the policy climate. Um, and then I guess lastly on those metrics, I would say uh, that's really important, really key to what green banks are, are about 
um, is ensuring that, as I was noting before, all uh, people uh, within our society have access to clean energy. So our equity metrics, no less than 40% of investment in benefits will inure to vulnerable communities. We want to uh, enable more private investment to, to, to drive more investment to vulnerable communities. We've, we've made uh, really good progress, but we can always do more. Um, so green banks across the country are really digging in there. So you could think about kind of the tools of clean energy also applying to making yourself more resilient to climate. You know, how do we make um, our families and businesses more resilient to power outages, but also how do we enable the utilities to dispatch solar PV using storage so that it reduces peak demand on the entire grid. So, so like there, there are many green banks across this country in front and center for all of them is vulnerable communities. Absolutely. Pretty incredible to think about the, the ripple uh, ramifications and how you actually quantify like a death avoided or a child who doesn't get asthma. How do you, how do you pin that down? I'd love to talk about um, legislation that's before Congress right now, because there are a bunch of, there are a bunch of pretty influential pieces, and I'd love to get your take on them. Um, the Build Back Better Act includes, you know, a greenhouse gas reduction fund, which would inject capital into state green banks. And the provision has been supported by both Republicans and Democrats. And then there's also the Clean Energy and Sustainability Accelerator. And for you, what are the differences in these pieces of legislation? What do they provide? How do they interrelate? I think green banks are really excited by the Build Back Better Act. Uh, if we can get it passed, right? So, so the history of it, um, you know, as I was noting before on the American Clean Energy and Securities Act back in 2009, well, this whole policy has come back again in 2020. And last year, it was led by Congresswoman Dingell. Uh, several of us were on a webinar with her, and she announced that she wanted to see uh, a national climate bank, and she actually launched the Clean Energy and Sustainability Accelerator policy uh, at the time, she proposed a $20 billion accelerator, um, and it became a part of HR2, the Move America Forward Act, and was voted on twice in the House. So here we are again, the House has voted it through, right? So then it, it's come in back into the hands of Senators Van Hollen and, and Senator Markey, who um, have led the way on the Clean Energy and Sustainability Accelerator. Uh, our uh, senators here in Connecticut, Senator Murphy and Senator Blumenthal, are obviously very, very supportive of it. Uh, their proposal actually was a $100 billion a national climate bank. Um, so when you've got the House at 20, the, the Senate at 100, uh, the White House came in um, earlier on this year, around Earth Day this year, and said, we really like the accelerator too, um, because it's doing what we need to ensure that the green economy is working for everybody. And just to be just to clarify, the accelerator is essentially just a dollar amount that would be injected into existing state level green banks. Is that right? Um, yes, as well as other financial institutions. So think about, um, yes, state and local government, as I've been talking about them, the state level green banks, there are also city and county level green banks. So, yes, federal money going to those activities. But not every state has a green bank. You know, we have. 15 of our states currently have green banks at the local and state level. Uh, there are 20 more in the wings that are in the process of creating a green bank. So you've got Alaska, Texas, Ohio, South Carolina at the state level are trying to create green banks. Um, so you can imagine federal funding going towards uh, those states as a form of stimulus, right? Economic development, infrastructure investment. But 
what we've all learned is that our partners are nonprofit partners, those who are driven by social and environmental means, uh, those who are focused on vulnerable communities, uh, should include community development financial institutions and credit unions whose missions themselves are also to enable investment in uh, vulnerable communities. So uh, I would envision that if Build Back Better passes um, and the Clean Energy and Sustainability Accelerator is included, uh, it's now called something else, uh, I'll talk about that in a second, um, that you would see financial institutions, state green banks partnering to effectively do what we've been doing. So the challenge is that now that we're working in a reconciliation environment, where the uh, federal government is looking to pass a major um, uh, social climate infrastructure bill, um, that 40 plus page clean energy and sustainability accelerator policy that moved through the House uh, and was proposed in the Senate is now a two page budget reconciliation item instead of a 40 page item. So it's now called the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund. Uh, it's $29 billion. Uh, it would be administered um, by the EPA administrator, Administrator Regan, uh, and would provide uh, two states uh, and financial institutions that capital to go and invest as green banks do. Um, so right. right now, that's kind of what's up in the air, right, is, uh, you know, it is $29 billion of $550 billion of climate investment within the Build Back Better Act. Um, and if it passes, um, our states will um, ensure that we're doing what we've been doing, uh, just a lot more of it, uh, to build the climate economy. Got it. So, so I know that those billions, when when we get into large numbers, sometimes they can be hard to wrap your head around. But you know, we're we're talking about tens of billions. What's needed, you know, by 2050 is on the order of over 100 trillion dollars. But to your point, this green bank model is really about mobilizing smaller amounts of public capital to encourage much, much larger or multiple of sort of private capital. And this is maybe a tool for how we get there to these larger sums of investment in the space. You know, we're at a seven to one leverage ratio in Connecticut. So every $1 of public funds in Connecticut attracts $7 of private. Now, we don't give it out. We don't give it away. We right. loan it out. So effectively now we've got a balance sheet of $260 million and we've got a net position of $90 million as, as a green bank. But yeah, we've got to get to the trillions. The more we help teach the uh, financial institutions about the opportunities presented in our local economies, the more investment we can see. I want to ask you a question about that, Brian, because it, you, you mentioned this really interesting example where you, you've identified this solar installation company in, in um, New Orleans, and you said that, you, that the, the Green Bank brought them up to, you know, to create a, a headquarters in Bridgeport, and, and, and then surrounded them with all these other financing partners, which you need to, to do solar installations. Um, so it sounds like the model, at least in Connecticut, is, is goes far beyond what a typical bank would do, right? It's, it's very nuanced and it's sort of situation specific. I, I think that's definitely right because green banks don't wait for the market opportunity to happen. Remember, we're, we're trying to translate public policy goals into measurable impact. So just because policymakers pass a policy doesn't mean it mean it gets implemented. So our goal is to make sure that those financial institutions see that their capital in this climate, in this market, is good from a risk return perspective for them, 
but for us is achieving those policy objectives. So it's clear that green banks and the Connecticut Green Bank in particular have had a lot of success in helping implement clean energy. And I just want to ask what other opportunities there are for green banks to help finance decarbonization of other sectors of society. Could they help finance a farm's transition to regenerative agriculture, for example? So we focused our first 10 years on a statutory definition of clean energy. Uh, this last legislative session, again, on a bipartisan basis, uh, created the expansion of the scope of the Connecticut Green Bank to include environmental infrastructure. So now we can invest in water, waste and recycling, um, climate adaptation and resilience, land conservation, parks and recreation, and yes, agriculture. So remember, in the clean energy space, we're, we're producing renewable energy credits that can be monetized in a market that become an, a way to finance projects to meet a renewable portfolio standard. In the context of farms, if we help them reduce the use of fertilizer and fertilizer discharge into the watershed through no-till agriculture, then would the state be willing to compensate the farmer for doing such things? Are there carbon offset values that can be created through regenerative farming? Like what are all the different ways that we could monetize public good that's being created by, by farmers pursuing sustainability practices? Those are some of the things that we're digging into because you know public policy doesn't always quantify or enable that value to happen. But you know, the other thing that's come up is around CSAs, community supported agriculture. Like, is there a way of thinking about a CSA, just like we think about a power purchase agreement in the clean energy space, why not think about the delivery on a regular basis of food to a home uh, through a CSA and have green banks finance CSAs at different levels, right? It's like a performance contract, right? So so we're, we're trying to wrap our arms around all these sorts of things. We're having fun with it. Um, there are green banks across the country, Rhode Island Infrastructure Bank, the California uh, Green Bank, um, uh, the infrastructure bank out of California that are, are doing other things beyond clean energy. Um, and I think we're all learning that the green bank model tool can help uh, attract more private investment. That was Brian Garcia, president and CEO of the Connecticut Green Bank. If you're interested in listening to more Climate Now podcasts, checking out our videos or signing up for our newsletter to get notified of new content and live events, go to our website at climatenow.com. If you want to get in touch with us, email us at contact at climatenow.com or tweet at us at WeAreClimateNow. We hope you can join us for our next conversation.